Welcome to Jaffa's Space, a podcast about the world of Jewish outdoor food, farming, and environmental education, or as we like to call it, Jaffe. In this four-part series with Rabbi Yedidya Sinclair, we explore connections between Talmudic teachings and our current climate crisis. Time to coincide with Sukkot, Rabbi Sinclair takes us on an incredible journey through ancient Jewish wisdom with modern implications. This series is sponsored by the Hazon dance troupe, the Lulav Shakers. Returning from their virtual world tour, we are thrilled to be channeling their energy through today's podcast. Feel free to grab your finest etrog and join us in congratulating the team as each shake brings them closer to God. For this series, we'd like to offer some framing. Sukkot ends each year with a prayer for rain. Talmud Tractate, Ta'anit, begins by asking what happens and what we should do if the rain doesn't come. The acute crisis of COVID-19 against the backdrop of the creeping challenge of a warming climate are shaking our sense of invulnerability to the natural world. And they are challenging our society's capacities to effectively respond. We need deeper sources of wisdom to orient ourselves to these challenges. Jewish wisdom about coping with a climactic crisis and plague is distilled in Tractate Ta'anit, which addresses how we should respond when a change in the weather threatens our lives and livelihoods. As different as our reality is from the Talmuds, both the rabbis and contemporary environmentalists converge on the view that dangerous disruption to the weather requires a response that touches our lifestyles, behaviors, and spiritual consciousness. In these four consecutive lectures, Rabbi Yadija Sinclair argues that people respond to existential danger from the weather through shifts in behavior and consciousness that reverberate across the divide, separating pre-modern and post-modern awareness. Through exploring these places of mutual resonance between the Talmud's world and our own, we will frame a new old theology of climate change that offers hope to overcome this critical challenge. We will now begin part two of our conversation with Rabbi Sinclair. So sit back, grab a cup of tea, and join us. So, um... Hello, everybody, and welcome. I'm Nigel Savage, I'm CEO of Chazan, broadcasting to you live from the Upper West Side. This exciting second Netflix episode in this four-part series, Climate Change, Jewish Tradition, What Is, Can, Could, or Should Be, a theology that actually helps us drive systematic change in the world going forwards, that helps us more deeply understand what it means to be Jewish in the 21st century, that helps us more deeply understand the unique gifts and opportunities of Jewish tradition in relationship to the world that we live in. Um, The word Chazam means vision. We've been around for a while. Fundamentally, what we're trying to do is to change the nature of organized Jewish life so that within a decade, it will be clear if you walk into any Jewish institution that to be Jewish is to be working for a more sustainable world for everybody. There are lots of practical things that need to be done around that. There are lots of leadership things that need to be done around that. But as in everything in Jewish tradition, it actually at some level begins with the tradition itself. It begins with Jewish thought and Jewish tradition and how that inflects what it means to be Jewish in the 21st century. So whether you were here yesterday or you are joining us for the first time, welcome today. Rabbi Yedidi Sinclair is a dear friend, is learned in Western tradition and Jewish tradition, has been a solar power entrepreneur, has been actively involved in Jewish environmental work for well over a decade. Um, Seven years ago, amongst other things, published an introduction, a bilingual introduction to Rev Cook's Shabbat Haaretz. Yudidi, we're honored to have you with us again, and I'm happy to hand over to you in Jerusalem. Thank you, Nigel. Uh, thank you uh, also to Hannah and Leanne from, uh, Leanna from Chazon for, for everything they've done to put this together. Uh, thank you everybody for being here. Uh, welcome back if you were here yesterday. Welcome if you weren't. And uh, so much going on in the world. I don't take it for granted at all that, you know, that anyone has an hour to spare. So I'm grateful for, for, for you, all of you, to, for being here. 
I, I saw a beautiful idea about uh, Sukkot today. I actually saw the same idea in the two places, in, uh, in the Meshalach, no, not the Meshalach, in the Sfat Emet, and also in the Nativot Shalom, two great Hasidic Rebbe's. So I thought I should, uh, that was a nice coincidence, so I should share it. You know, it says, the Rambam says that in, on Sukkot, there was a greater joy than on any other of the festivals. There was great joy in the, in the temple on any festival, but on Sukkot it was greater. So everybody asks why. And these two Rebbe's say, it's because of the, the, the Simchat Beit HaShoeva, the rejoicing that took place about drawing water. And they both say the same very simple thing. They say the water is an expression of pure love. You know, the fact that we have you know, this, this pure, clean, life-giving resource is just pure love from, from God. And when we experience, when we feel, when we draw the water, that's, we feel God's love more than any other time. This basic essential resource, which is so abundant and yet so necessary. And so I know that this is a very, very difficult time to feel the simcha of this Chag, but I really hope that, you know, that everybody, wherever you are, can feel a little bit of the, the extra simcha of, of Sukkot through the, you know, the whatever we're going through, the abundance of the, the simple things which we still enjoy. So just a word about yesterday for people who weren't here, and in fact, for people who were here as well. Uh, I introduced this, this book, Masechet Ta'anit, um, which I'm you know, pleased to call Masechet Climate Change. This is the, the book, I think, which has most to say about uh, uh, what happens, how Jews respond to a change in the weather. And because and, and of that, I, I pasted this picture in my volume of Masechet Climate Change a few months ago, just to remind myself of that. So yesterday, I just, you know, I tried to make plausible the idea that as far away as the world of Tanit is in terms of time and space, nevertheless, the core insight there is that the natural and the moral universes are in fact one interconnected system. And that, that is something that suddenly in the area of climate change, we can, we can get, we get that because we know actually that the choices that we make and the technologies that you, you, we use and the behavior that we act on actually is interconnected with the weather and with the climate systems. And so that idea is suddenly intuitive to us now in a way that, 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 that it wasn't throughout the modern period, say, when like, the idea that humans had anything to do with the weather looked ridiculous. So that's a very, very short recap of, um, of, uh, of yesterday. Uh, now let's, uh, let's move on to today. So today, I want to look at the question of what individuals and by extension communities can do in a resp response to a climate crisis. Now, this is something that you know, uh, Chazon, I know, is very much in, involved in. And, and almost by definition, we as people who have chosen to, to, you know, to spend this hour in this way, are, I assume, kind of exercised by this, uh, by this question. But before I jump onto this, into this question, I want to pick up where we ended last night. And last night, I said at the very end, in response to a great question, that, uh, that today, We'll start off by looking at the way the Torah and also Masechet Tanit see something unique in the climate of, uh, of, of, of the land of Israel. And that, that, that the uniqueness they perceive about that runs very, very deep in, in throughout the DNA of Jewish tradition, I would say. So we're going to come to individuals, but we're going to start off with... Uh, with, with what's you know, special about the climate here in Israel. You know, th think of it as like as if we were doing a cooking show, right? Say we're making, making I don't know, kuba. That's like Middle Eastern Kanadlach for Ashkenaz among us. And it's got a filling and it's got dough and then the filling fits inside the dough and it's 
anybody who's ever made Cooper, it's really tricky to get one inside the other. So first now we're going to make the filling, then we're going to put it on one side, then we're going to make the dough, and we're going to see how it fits together. So, so this theme I want to start off with is the theme of the unusual climatic and geographic character of the land of Israel, in particular compared to the neighbors, particularly the neighbors of Egypt and, and, and Bavel, Babylon, where, where the rabbis of Tanit themselves actually lived. It's a theme that you see in the Torah itself in many places, and it's absolutely central to Talmud Tanit. And we can also, if you want, trace it in climate science and ecology today. So, so I want to look first at the, uh, the first source on, uh, on the sheet that I circulated. And I believe uh, the, uh, the sources went out to people who were here yesterday. And I think they should also be in a link in the chat. And I think they should also be in, um, uh, in a link on Facebook as well. So one way or another, you, I hope hopefully everybody can see the sources. Uh, if not, let me know and uh, we'll see what we can do. So the first source is a famous one. It's from the book of Devarim, chapter 11. And the Torah there says this. It says, as just about as the people are going to enter into the land of Israel, it says, the land you're going towards to inherit is not like the land of Egypt, which you've come from, where you planted seeds and watered them with your feet like a vegetable garden. The land that you're going into is a land of hills and valleys. From the rain of the heavens, you shall drink water. It's a land that the Lord your God looks out for always. The eyes of the Lord your God are upon it from the beginning of the year until the year's end. So we see from, from this source in Devarim that the place where you get your water from is different, the Torah is saying. Right? There's no great big river running through the country like the Nile in Egypt, guaranteeing your wealth and fertility. If you get water at all, it comes from heaven. And then the Torah goes on immediately to an even more famous bit, the second paragraph of the Shema. And it shall come to pass, if you really listen to the mitzvot I am commanding you this day, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and all your soul. Then I will bring rain in your land at the right time, both the early rains and the later rains, and you shall gather in your corn and your wine and your oil. So having established where the water comes from in the land of Israel, the second paragraph of the Shema then goes on and says, the water that comes is going to be at the center of a conversation between God and Israel about our lives. If our lives are going the right way as God sees it, then the water will come. And if it's not, God forbid, then, then it won't. So the water is the center of this conversation or this feedback loop, if you like, between about centered on the weather between the people and God. So this passage is about a small and particular part of the world, the land of Israel. It talks about rainfall in the land of Israel with a pointed contrast to the situation that pertained in Egypt. So what exactly is that contrast? Well, the biblical com commentators spell it out. I want to look at the Ramban, which is the next year source. Uh, although you can find similar ideas in Rashi and the Rashbam, but I want to look at the Ramban because he was quite unusual among the medieval commentators and he actually spent time living here. In 1267, near the end of his life, after winning his famous disputation with Pablo Cristiani, he had to flee Barcelona and come to Jerusalem. On arriving, the Ramban wrote in a letter to his son about the desolation and abandonment that he saw in the land. And in his commentary on the Torah, which Ramban is thought to have composed here in the land of Israel, he writes about this contrast between Egypt and Israel. And he says this, know that it's not like the land of Egypt that you can water it continuously with your feet from rivers and lakes like a vegetable garden. Rather, it's a land of hills and valleys. From the rain of the heavens, you'll drink water and not from any place else. And so it's necessary that God be concerned with it always for rain, for the land is very thirsty and it needs rain all year. And if you go against the will of God and he doesn't concern himself with the land for rain, then it'll be very bad. That's my, my translation, but I think, it's, I, think it's, I think it's sound. So for Ramban, the comparison <coughs> with Egypt centers on this precariousness of material life in Israel and the consequent interweaving of our moral and spiritual life here with the natural world. 
Egypt enjoys this secure affluence afforded by its great rivers. In, in contrast, without the big rivers, the providential gaze of God must be upon the land if, if, uh, if life here is to be sustainable. And, and by the way, I didn't mention at the beginning, but just like uh, yesterday, I'll talk for about 40 minutes and then opening it up to questions and, uh, and, and comments. And by the way, thank you so much for the chat questions uh, which people sent in yesterday. They gave me a lot to think about and I hopefully I'll get to some of them in the course of these, uh, of these talks. So Devarim 11 then is quoted all over Tanit and it contrasts the climate and ecology of Egypt and the land of Israel. The passage suggests that these contrasting geographic conditions from them flows a spiritual difference. Whereas in Egypt, the ready availability of big water sources enables easy, assured abundance. In Israel, the scarcity of water supplies and the dependence of rain on rain creates a reliance on God's blessings for the basic needs of life. Now, this talk about essential climatic or spiritual differences between different places might sound a bit odd to us. How should we understand it today? Well, my friend Penchas Alpert, who's professor of atmospheric physics at Tel Aviv University, now emeritus, he asked himself this question as a leading climate scientist. What should we make of the Bible and Talmud's insistence that there is something different about the climate of the land of Israel? He decided to map the weather systems in the northern hemispheres for January, the middle of Israel's rainy season. And he discovered something very interesting. There is something very unusual about Israel's climate. It's situated precisely on a synoptic saddle, saddle point, a point of disequilibrium between four weather systems. Right, to the northwest, there's a low pressure system associated with rainy weather from Europe. To the southeast, there's another low pressure area coming from India. And in between, there's two high pressure systems associated with dry weather, one in the northeast over Turkey and Central Asia, and one in the southwest around the Sahara Desert. So Pinchas Alpert notes that for any weather forecaster, any meteorologist, this confluence of different weather systems over one place is a total weather forecaster's nightmare. <coughs> because in this area, a dominant weather system can easily be contracted by an opposing system. And so you know, in the rainy system, the weather here is actually highly unpredictable. Right? And so anybody who lives here will know that several times every, every winter, low pressure fronts come from the Mediterranean and you see them on the map and they're predicted to bring rain and within a few days they dissipate before reaching the coastline or meeting the hot air of the Saharan system which pushes them out of the way. So the weather forecasts are actually highly unreliable here but actually it's not their fault. And Alpa interestingly discovered only one other place in the northern hemisphere with a comparably unpredictable weather system and it's located at a point of longitude 180 degrees west right over the Pacific Ocean. So then Alpert then concludes in his mode as a religious Jew, he says, maybe this is one reason why God chose this place to be, to be the Holy Land. Here, people are conscious of the vital need for rain. This unpredictability, together with our acute need for rain here, creates a situation in which we still feel ourselves to be existentially dependent on rain. It's thus, in a sense, a climate an ecology which is made for religion. So there is a distinctiveness, the climate here, that the Torah and the commentators and Tani mention. And, and if you're interested, you can trace it all the way through, through the Torah. Now, I also put on the, uh, on the sources the, um, the passage about how Lot came to look over the, uh, looked, was faced with the choice of where he wanted to go when he separated from Abraham. And he says, Lot looked about him and he saw how well watered was the plain, uh, plain of the Jordan at source two. And this was before the Lord had destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah all the way to Soar, like the garden of the Lord. I think that means Gan Eden. And like the land of Egypt. So, so you have on the one hand, Sodom and Egypt and, and, uh, and Gan Eden. Uh, and that's what Lot chose. And on the other hand, because with all their abundance of water, on the other hand, you have, uh, you have the land of, of, of Israel. And the implication is that Lot did not make the right choice. And that, and the, in fact, abundance of water is not what you want, or, or uh, abundance of, of, of groundwater supplies is not what you want if you want to grow spiritually. 
uh, and you can trace that idea all through the uh, all through the Torah. Rav Berkovitz has done a beautiful job of that in a number of places. Now the Talmud in Tanit makes a lot of this and extends this typological contrast between Egypt and Israel from the Bible to the land of Bavel, where the rabbis of the Talmud Bavli lived, which also had great rivers running through it, the Tigris and the Euphrates, just like Egypt. So here's one typical story which, uh, uh, f which makes that contrast, and it's in Tanit uh, 9b. It's the next source on your, uh, on your sheet. And I think these little stories here speak volumes about the contrasting ecological and spiritual realities of Israel and Babel. And they also encapsulate something profound about the processes through which material abundance is translated into well-being in different places. So let's unpack these stories. The story is this. Ula came to Babel. Right? Uh, and as I said yesterday, I've brought the, uh, the trans English translation from Safaria where the bold is the translation and the bits in between the bold are their, you know, their little comments and interpolations. So Ula, who was a rabbi from Israel, came to Bavel. He saw these flying clouds, called porchot in Hebrew, and he said to the people, clear away my stuff because the rain is about to come. In the end, the rain didn't come. Ula said, rather harshly, I think, just as the Babylonians are liars, so too their rains are liars. So What's happening here? In this story, Ula, a sage of the land of Israel, goes to visit Babel. He sees these poor hot clouds whose appearance in the land of Israel invariably portends rain. In Babel, however, these predictable patterns are upended. Poor hot drift across the sky and no rain comes. So disturbed by this irregularity, Ula lashes out at the Babylonians and, and their clouds and saying, you can't trust them. Or but perhaps it would be better to say he doesn't understand their language. They're not behaving the way he's used to. Next story. Ula came to Bavel. So Ula comes to Bavel again. He saw that a basket of dates there sold for azuz, right? And that's really, really cheap, apparently. He said to himself, a basket of honey, which you make dates from, uh, sells here for azuz, and the Babylonians don't spend their whole time studying Torah. So he apparently ate a lot of dates, and at night the dates gave him diarrhea. So in the morning he said to himself, well, a basket full of danger sells for Azuz, and the Babylonians still managed to spend some time studying Torah. So in this second story, life in Bavel also does not behave the way that Ula's experiences in growing up in Israel have led him to expect. Arriving in Bavel, he sees that the dates there are really cheap. How is it possible, he says, that the Babylonians don't spend the bulk of their time studying Torah. I mean, the necessities of life in Babel are so abundant. Uh, you know, what else is material wealth for if not to li liberate humanity from the toils of hard labor and free our time for the true ends of existence? So Ula thinks. So, so how come the Babylonians aren't sitting in yeshiva all day? That's what, he's, that's what bothers him. But that night, Ula learns that the connection between wealth and well-being isn't actually not so straightforward. He's assailed by stomach pains and diarrhea brought on by eating too many dates. And he realizes actually he's done the Babylonians an injustice. So he thinks in the morning, oh, I'm impressed. The Babylonians have to endure this kind of pain and they're still able to learn a little bit of Torah. I think what Ula comes to understand is that abundance of natural resources in Bavel does not translate automatically into a life of ease, leisure, freedom, or religious growth. Now, a whole chain of circumstances stands between natural resources and their metabolization, if you like, into happiness, health, or spiritual progress. So this little story then is about the way in which these different societies, I would say, digest raw blessing and turn those inputs into outputs of real value in people's lives. And I think the story suggests that Ula went on a journey, not just physically, but spiritually from a passive attitude towards the Jews of Babylon, who had it easy from his Eretz Israel perspective, towards a kind of a greater tolerance and understanding and even compassion for the Jews in Babylon and the very different set of challenges that they faced. So this is a lot, one of many examples in the Talmud Bavli Tanit how the rabbis in Bavel realize that there's actually something highly unusual about the climate in Israel 
and that has spiritual implications and they reflect on what that means for them. Now, one could obviously draw out a lot of contemporary lessons for this about Israel and the diaspora, which is not really our subject and misunderstanding one of one another, and perhaps that'll come out in the discussion. But, but, but what I want to bring out here is, is the way that the Talmud is in Tani is very conscious of these different climates and ecologies of, these, of Israel and Babel, and how that actually translates into different kind of spiritual consciousness. Okay, so now we've made the filling. Let's get back to, to the dough. So this question, and, and we'll, we'll see in a moment how these, you know, why, why I brought this to start with. So I want to look at this question, which I think is very pertinent for us as individuals and as members of Jewish communities of different kinds. In the area of climate change, how do we change? And so something that Hazon is very, very concerned about, as, as, as Nigel said at the beginning, what can make us change? And why as individuals or members of communities should we take action on climate change? Now, this last question, why, may seem like so obvious that it's not worth asking. You know, if, if, if all scientists are all saying this is really serious and people are really suffering and, and we can do something, however small, then, you know, how could we not? Well, you know, we do, we know actually from the last 15 years that the answer, unfortunately, is easily. You know, most people, I think, have known what you could do if you wanted to. You know, everybody just about in the Western world, I think, has seen countless times these lists of 10 things you can do in your life. And I'm sure, you know, most of us here today have done some of those things. You know, but if you're like me, I've, you know, I've done some of these. I eat a bit less meat. I don't drive very much. I didn't, you know, I haven't been to America across the Atlantic for three years. And, you know, maybe my footprint is a bit less than some of my neighbors. But it's certainly not dramatically less. It's a, basically a similar lifestyle to theirs with some sort of, you know, little environmental tweaks around the edges because I try and care about these things. And by virtue of you being here, you know, probably, and you, you're, you're among the most engaged people in the Jewish community, I would think, about on this issue of, uh, of, 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 of climate change. And, and, you know, and I think we, you know, we could all be doing, doing, doing more. And, you know, we could all be helping other people to do more. I think, uh, I want to show you a picture, which um, which I think is very uh, any environmental activist should uh, should uh, should think about. This is a this is a graph of uh, energy related CO two emissions by sector in the United States over time. So what do you see, what do you see here? Well, in fact, overall emissions have gone down but they've gone down entirely because emissions from power have gone down. And they've, emissions from power have gone down for two reasons, one very good and one less good. You know, the very good reason is that renewables have become much, much cheaper over the last 10 years, like fallen by 80%. And that's, you know, part of that is due to some good policies by the last US administration, for sure. And part is improvement of the technology, so it now makes sense, and solar is cheaper than coal in most places. Right. The less good reason is, is, is fracking, which brought a, a lot more natural gas into the mix, which is less carbon intensive than coal. Fracking has huge other problems, but that also contributed to this. What, what hasn't changed? Well, emissions from transportation still going up after a little dip here in the time of the, of the financial crisis. Uh, industry and buildings. Now, I assume that food is a combination of transport and industry. But if you want to look at what, uh, what food looks like, um, let's have a look at this, uh, at this, this other picture. Uh, did the first picture come up? This picture? Yeah. So the second picture, if you want to look at food, meat consumption is, is going up. Okay, you now that's mostly you did, you did you, the first picture has come up, but the meat one has not. Oh, okay. So, um, how about that? Is that a meat one there? Uh, I'm not seeing it, but my screen may be slow. <laughs> well, okay. Well, the point is that meat consumption is going up. 
So, so you know, what I want to say is that the things that for 15 years environmental campaigners have been telling everybody to do over and over again, uh, you know, fly less, drive less, eat less meat. And, and those numbers have been, despite all that, all those constant exhortations, in the wrong direction. And the thing that is helping, of course, it needs to help change, it needs to decline much, much more than it has. But the thing that is helping is improvements in power generation uh, technology to make them less carbon intensive. So I think this should make us you know, think really hard about this question about you know, what we're doing as, uh, as, as uh, what, what the, I don't want to say us, because it depends on what our goals are, but what you know, the environmental campaigners are doing. And it should make us ask, I think, two questions. Right? And first one, if it's a change in actually in technology, economics and government policy that has been moving the needle, well, why should individuals and communities change? We, we need better arguments to justify that. And then the other question is, well, for 15 years, environmentalists have been putting out these lists and website, websites and institutes and campaigns saying drive less, fly less, eat less meat. And it hasn't made a dent. Well, you know, why not? Well, there's a very large literature now on climate change ethics and philosophy and psychology and behavioral science. I'll try to shed light on, on why not. I'm, I'm most familiar myself with the ethics literature. Uh, and uh, Stephen Gardner, a philosopher at University of Washington, is one of the leading experts on climate ethics. Some ways it's like this. He says the world's most affluent nations attempted to pass on the costs of climate change to the poorer uh, and most and, and, and weaker citizens of the world. Second, the present generation is tempted to pass the problems on to future generations. Third, our grasp of the science and, the, and, and international justice and human relationships helps to facilitate our inaction. And as a result, we're engaging in willful self-deception when the lives of future generations, the world's poor, and even the basic fabric of life on the planet is at stake. We should wake up to this profound ethical failure, Gardner says, and demand more of our institutions, our leaders, and ourselves. Well, I think that's a pretty good summary. And I would also add this. Most arguments for people to change their lifestyles are implicitly or explicitly utilitarian based on the principle of the greatest good for the greatest number. And the claim is that you or I, through our flying or driving or meat eating, are having an a part of an infinitesimal part of small part of a process that's melting the Arctic or is causing Bangladeshi peasants to lose their lives in a hurricane. And surely, the pleasure that you or I get from eating or flying is not worth even the tiny contribution you make to that person's life. Well, you know, that just has not moved most of us. You know, from Hamburg on the one hand, or, you know, person who I'll never know, who had to play a teeny weeny part in harming, we eat the hamburger, most of us. You know, eight, eight uh, cubic square meters of ice in the Arctic, flight to, to, to London, well, you know, thanks. I'm sorry about the ice in the Arctic, but I, I want to go and see my family in London. And those utilitarian calculations have been too distant, too weak, and too tenuous to move most people. Now, these are difficult questions, and I'm not going to say that Tarnit gives us all the answers. But I do think it can help reframe some of these things in a way that's helpful. I want to look at the discussion of the Talmud's role of individuals in the early stages of a time, climate crisis which I think gives us a different understanding about the ones uh, 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 from, from what's out there already and helps us respond better, I hope, as Jews and as global citizens. So there's a sugya, a, sugya, a set, section in the Talmud about the role of individuals, yechidim, as the Talmud calls it. Now, these were the people who wake up to the realization that something's going wrong and that the rain's not coming they wake up before most people and they take action before most people. So who are they? How, how do you get to be a yachid? What's their motivation? And what was their effect? And I'm bringing this because, you know, all the global climate crisis is here. You know, in terms of awareness in the Jewish community, I think it's probably fair to say that the numbers of people who, who understand that there's a crisis here now, we're still at the stage of yachidim, of individuals. 
individuals and some communities and some wonderful organizations like Chazon and others who are responding. It's by no means a mass awakening yet. So I want to bring two or three moments from this sugya that I find helpful. So this is the mission about the Yechidim. If the 17th of Marcheshvan arrived and the rain hasn't fallen, individuals begin to fast three fasts for rain. One may eat and drink after dark and one's permitted to work, bathe, smear oil on one's body, wear clothes and have conjugal relations. Right, that's the fast of the Yechidim. It's not, they're not eating from dawn till, till dusk. Uh, it's not a full-on fast with all these other restrictions, but they're doing this. If Rosh Chodesh Kislev arrived and rain still hasn't fallen, then the court degrees three further fasts on the community. And that's, that's for everybody. It's no longer just the Yechidim, it's the whole community. So there are three fasts first that the individuals who sense that something's wrong before other people take upon themselves to do something before everybody else. Now, I want to look at the first three lines of the Talmud, which, on relate, which relates to the effect of what these Yechidim are doing. And it might seem to be talking about a small point, but it's really, really not. The implications are big and they're real. So the Talmud says, who are these Yechidim who are mentioned? Rav Huna says it's referring to the rabbis who undertake the fast when other people don't, do not. So Rav Huna's view is that the individuals, those who fast before others, those who are tuned to there being something really wrong before others, are the rabbis. People distinguished for their learning and the position of communal leadership that comes from it. The Talmud Yerushalmi, and I couldn't find it in a convenient way to put on the, uh, on the page, takes a very different view about who counts as an individual. According to the Yerushalmi, they are people who are trusted by everybody else. They're people who are admired, looked up to, and respected by the community. Doesn't say exactly why, but presumably because of their, you know, their personality qualities. Not because of their learning, not because of how many tractates of Talmud they know, but because they are looked up to by everybody else. And, and, and just as an aside, later the, the, the Talmud says, well, you know, how do you get to decide if you can be a yachid or not? <coughs> the rabbis say, hey, not everybody who wants to be a yachid can be a yachid. Rabbi Yossi says, let anybody who wants to do so if they have some learning. And it's great because it's not a source of pleasure or it's not fun for them to behave like this. It's a source of trouble and of pain. So you did, you, you did you just forgive me one second? I apologize. I think you want to switch off your screen share. Okay. Even Thank though I don't know how time. you do that, but I'm gonna great, carry on. Did that did that do it? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for telling me, Nigel. So so Rebiosi and the Yushami, they democratize this concept of 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 individuals, of Yechidim, who who take it upon themselves to who sense that something's wrong before most people and take it upon themselves to do something about it before most people. It's not a reward or a mark of honor, but it's a source of, of anguish and responsibility to the people who do it. So then Rav Huna goes on and says this, and you know, and this is gonna seem a bit technical, but bear with me, because it has, it has real, real implications. Rav Huna said, the individuals who fast the three fasts do so on a Monday and then on the next Thursday and then again on the next Monday. Now, public fasts happen on Mondays and Thursdays. Rav Huna teaches you start on a Monday. Well, why does that matter? And moreover, not just why does it matter, but why is Rav Huna bothering to say this again? Because we know it. We learned it. The Talmud goes on from a Mishnah, which says the court may not decree a fast on the community starting from a Thursday so as not to cause an increase in prices. We'll understand that in a second. So we know you don't start a series of public fasts on a Thursday, but rather on a Monday, so as not to cause a panic and an increase in prices. How, how might it do that? So Rashi explains that when storekeepers see that people are buying two big meals at once on a Thursday, one for the end of their fast, and then also for Shabbat, 
they think, hang on a sec, oh, oh, there's a famine coming now. They'll jack up the prices to excessive levels, causing hardship for everybody. And that momentary spike create, can create a perception of panic in the market, which can cause an actual real panic. So to avoid that, rather the first fast uh, uh, on Monday, Thursday and Mondays. You don't start on a Thursday. So then the question is, well, we know this already. What is Ralph Huna's statement that this is true also for fast of individuals add? So the Gemara answers, Ralph Huna's comment is necessary in case you would say that this applies only to a community, but in the case of an individual, no. In other words, you might have thought that this rule about not starting a series of fasts on a Thursday because it would create an impression of panic and a jump in prices only applies to a fast of the community. When everybody's out there swarming through the shirk, buying tons of food for their breakfast fast meals and for Shabbat. But a fast by individuals, surely that wouldn't have such a great impact. And so it should be okay, shouldn't it, to start that on a Thursday? That's what you might have thought it would have been a normal assumption to make, that only a change in buying habits en masse by the whole community could make the markets move. Well, Fahuda is coming to teach us that that's not the case. Even a fast by individuals ending on a Thursday night could give the impression that a famine is coming and cause a sharp rise in food prices. So individuals too have to start their fasting on a Monday because they too have the power to upend the market if they start fasting on a Thursday. So I would say that this short and apparently technical sugya with which the Talmud introduces the issue of the individuals is teaching four important things. First, the Havamina, your default assumption, what you would have thought, is that only a change in buying habits by the whole community could affect the prevailing market prices. That's what we tend to think. The, only everybody moving at once can make that different. Secondly, the maskana, the conclusion is that no, the acts of individuals, especially if they're individuals who are looked to as leaders and people of moral standing in the community, can affect market-wide phenomena. Thirdly, these yechidim, these individuals, remember, they, what are they doing? They're fasting, which is, you might have thought is a personal spiritual act. But no, actually, what they're doing affects stuff happening in the real economy. There are real-world consequences of this spiritual act. A change in their buying habits of these respected people, because of their fast, actually has a profound impact on the market. And fourth and finally, the impact is through the way it affects people's perceptions of the reality they're in. It's not that the Yechidim actually have enormous market buying power. There's just a few of them but it's the perception of what these individuals change in habits means for the state of the world as a whole that moves the markets. So I think this analysis of, of economic markets driven by perception and emotion is something, something that, you know, that Keynes or Robert Schiller, the behavioral economist at Yale would certainly recognize. And the idea that the acts of individuals can have an impact, I think is really relevant, for example, to the whole business of, of divestment from fossil fuel companies, which, which yeah, to my mind is one of the most, the most effective ways that individuals can, you know, can have an impact. And, it's, you know, and, and the environment, this climate movement has actually discovered that this is one of the most effective leverage points that we have, one of the greatest places of, ins insens of sensitivity that these, uh, these large companies, which are, really are impeding progress on climate in all kinds of ways. One where by creating a perception that there's something shifting can actually get them really scared and actually causing them to cause them to change. Something perhaps to come back to in the discussion. Now, now finally, I wanna come back to the filling which we made before and the question about climate and the climatic and ecological damage differences between the land of Israel and her neighbors. I want you to take a look at the last section on, on the sources that I, that I, that I said to Aaron. The bit where I, I highlighted certain parts in, in yellow. Uh, people got that? Okay. 
So this is this is part of the this is the the, the continuation of the sugya about yechidim individuals. We don't have time to go into it in depth, but a remarkable thing jumps out from the page here, and that is this: that woven into the sugya, within the space of less than a page, we have no fewer than four references to the story of Joseph in the Torah. Right, the first is from Genesis 42. Jacob's advice before the brothers' first journey to Egypt to purchase food. Second is Genesis 45, Joseph's instructions to his brothers. They're about to leave to bring Jacob down to Egypt. The third is from the moment when the brothers set out from Egypt, and unbeknown to him, Joseph's cup has been put at the bottom of Shimon's sack. And the fourthly, we have the verse about Joseph telling us that Joseph had two sons born to him before the years of famine began. So it's clear the Talmud wants us to have the story and the image of Joseph very much in our minds as we study this sugya about the roles of individuals in responding to a crisis of the climate. But, but why? Now, a very, very short methodological point. The way I've learned to study Talmud, when the Talmud brings a biblical phrase or verse as a proof text, the proof depends not just on the narrow linguistic point, but on the entire context of this biblical passage. Now, Rav Cook understands very much the Talmud to be quoting from the Talmud, from the Torah, with a full and a rich awareness of the context. Levinas, too, great French philosopher who wrote about the Talmud, argues that the rabbis engaged in a deep, deep reading of their biblical sources. Levinas says, quote, my master, he's talking about the mysterious and brilliant Monsieur Shushani, who, who disappeared and then came back and taught him and Elie Wiesel in Paris every few years taught that beyond this or that verse, closely or remotely supporting what a Talmudic scholar is saying, it's by its spirit, that is by its context, that the verse conveys the proper tonality to the idea that it's supposed to establish. The Talmud is always bringing the whole context. So the quoted verse is becoming a kind of code or shorthand for a whole field of spiritual resonances that the Talmud assumes when it's citing it. So with that in mind, let's ask again, why Joseph? Why is he so central here? Well, one well, we could begin by saying that Joseph was an individual who saved Egypt from starvation and famine, and he was attuned to the changes about to happen to the climate. He understood before anyone else what was on the way, and he ensured that his government and his society took the big steps needed to prepare. Now, it has clearly crossed your mind what it is you have to find. You need a man to lead you through the famine with a flair for economic planning, as the Achronim say. Joseph was a pers one person, a yachid, through who his foresight and ability to act took Egypt through a climate adaptation process and was able to avert the worst effects of the drought. So that's, I think, clearly part of the answer about why Joseph is here. But with the knowledge that we now have of the previous sugya, we can take it a step further. Because the Talmud has just been discussing the difference in climate, ecology, and consciousness between Israel with its shortage of resources and, it, and a lack of rivers, and Egypt and Bavel, where the presence of a great river means there's abundant natural wealth, and people presumably didn't have to worry too much about the water or the weather. And Joseph, let's remember, was a figure who lived his life between these two worlds, these two different kinds of consciousness. And moreover, we can say, point out that these three verses are not just about the Joseph story, these first three, but they're about what happens on journeys between Egypt and Israel in the Joseph story. Joseph's journeys in which the travelers transition between Egypt and Israel count consciousness. And we can further add that the fourth verse is about Joseph's children, who he named to mark his fraught ambivalence with his relationship with the land of Israel. We don't have time to go into that here. And then also furthermore, that this whole sugya in between is interspersed with ideas and texts about journeys from and between different physical, spiritual, and halachic places. Again, don't have time to go into that, but you can, you can uh, look at that at home. So I would suggest Joseph is present throughout this sugya about Yechidim, individuals, not just as the individual who was attuned to imminent climate change and led Egypt through this famine, but also as the man who did so by bringing together the mindsets of Egypt and the land of Israel. He brought this mindset of the land of Israel where the climate is uncertain and our life depends on recognizing the precariousness and the preciousness of resources and conserving them into the consciousness of Egypt 
where natural resources were much more abundant and presumably people didn't care so much and so saved them from famine. So I suggest that the Talmud is saying what made Yosef a yachid and a paradigm of an individual is yes, he got himself into a leadership position and transformed his whole society and economy, but he did that by bringing the perspective of Eretz Yisrael, of vulnerability to the climate and the preciousness of key resources into Egypt where that perspective was not native to the land. Now, I'd say that this Eretz Yisrael consciousness is there, is here somewhere buried very deep in our DNA. It's in the Tanakh, it's in the Talmud, it's in our daily prayers, it's in the second paragraph of the Shema, if we think about what it means. It's in, we add words, Mashiv Haruach, which we add, which if we think about what they, what they mean, and we can say them with or without an awareness of this, if you like, you know, Eretz Israel consciousness towards resources. And if you ask me if that presence is, consciousness is here in, uh, in Israel itself, well, the very short answer is perhaps a bit more than you would think, but certainly much less than it needs to be. It needs to be unburied here as well. So perhaps part of what it means to be a Yachid in this regard as a Jew facing a climate crisis is to unearth this Joseph consciousness and bring it to whatever place that we're living in and whatever reality we are part of. So, so I think I'll stop here. There was one more, more rather crucial point that I wanted to make, but perhaps if the opportunity comes up, I'll make it in the, uh, in, in the questions. But I, I really want to hear from, hear from you. So, um, so over to you. Indeed, yeah, I want to say a uh, humongous thank you. Um, for the second time, I feel like in a, in, a, in a really telegenic way, you leave us at least partly on the, on the <laughs> ends of our seats wanting to hear the piece of it. Um, I just want to share with everybody that we had agreed with Yadidya after yesterday that he's going to try and compress some of his material so that on the fourth day on Thursday, his lecture is going to be shorter. And on Thursday, we're going to have more time uh, left for questions and comments. Um, uh, 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 I would simply add just one brief thing as you were speaking, Yudidia, which is that it's been really interesting over a period of time, certainly at Hazan, in relationship to the piece of work that we've done to individuals about individually changing behavior. It has been fascinating that we've begun to name explicitly. On the one hand, this is actually arithmetically insignificant, and we should acknowledge that. And on the other hand, it's that which we need to do morally and ethically, not merely to look ourselves in the mirror, but then to have standing to say anything to anybody else. And in the tension between those things is something that I think you're claiming in a sense as a certain kind of Eretz Yisrael, and a certain kind of Jewish consciousness about vulnerability and significance. Um, the floor is open and it's a virtual floor. So try and speak up, put up your hands and we will call upon you for uh, brief comments or questions. I've got Jonathan Shosh. And the way that it works, the new Zoom rules, I have to ask you to unmute yourself and then you have to unmute yourself. So Jonathan, there you go. Okay, thank you. So I, I really appreciate, uh, Rebbe, you did yeah, what, what you're uh, teasing out here in terms of the difference between the Echidim, the individuals and the community. I, I want to, uh, of course, as a good Jew, you know, offer a kind of challenge though, um, which is I, I really reject the, the distinction that's being made when it comes to contemporary uh, situation. And this, this whole notion of individual actions are uh, useless uh, and reducing our personal carbon footprint is infinitesimal and ineffective. And I wanna do it from a different perspective than Nigel's doing it. You know, the, the uh, development of solar energy, wind energy, all these technological uh, solutions don't come out of nowhere. They come out of transformed individual consciousness. They come out of the same place that individuals want to stop eating more, you know, as much meat. They would come out of the same place as people wanting to compost as in their, on a personal level. So I feel like that it's a very artificial distinction being made between what, how individuals transform their own lives and how individuals transform structural 
organizational decisions. Uh, and, and I think that that lack of a distinction is borne out by precisely the texts you're bringing. The Yechidim, the question about the Yechidim and the individuals, who are they? Why are they praying first for the, for the rains to come? And I, I think of this story and, and people who are more educated than I will remember the name of the rabbi, but there's a case not in, it's either elsewhere in Tanit or elsewhere where there's a case of a drought and they're asking different rabbis to pray for rain. And even the great Rabbi Akiva doesn't bring, successfully bring rain. And I cannot remember who the sage is who manages to bring rain uh, ultimately. But what I see in that is what are the qualities of these individuals who are essentially able to leverage effectiveness? So in other words, the question isn't between individual and structural changes. The question is individuals who, whose individual transformations can bring about uh, public policy structural changes and transformations. In other words, an individual who's transformed, who's a solar engineer, who can bring about incredible transformations in solar technology is going to be more effective through his or her individual transformation than, than me just by, you know, etc. So I just want to offer that and stop there. Uh, thank, thank you, Jonathan. And I, I'm really glad that you, you, you did make that because uh, uh, I understand why from what I said, you might have um, got the impression that I that, that you did, but that's really not the impression that I mean to convey. And I think that's where I actually need to allude to the last, uh, the last piece, which I didn't, uh, which I didn't get to. I don't at all think, I really don't, that individual changes are, are unimportant. I think they're they're very important, and I try to make them as as much as I can in my own uh, in my own in my own life. But, but what I said was actually. You know, after a long time, we don't seem to have done a great job of getting a great many people to, to, to make those changes. And we need to think of better ways of, of doing it. And that comes to the, the last point, which I did, which I did want to make, um, which the, the sources on your, uh, on your sheet, which, um, which say that when a, uh, a, a drought or a situation like that happens, uh, when the community is in is in distress, you know you shouldn't say uh, separate yourself from the community and say I'll go to my home, I'll eat and drink, and peace be upon my soul, and eat and drink and be to and and be merry. Uh, but rather you should participate in what's going on with the community, and it, it brings you know, it brings Moshe. His hands were heavy. And asked, well, Moshe was a national leader. I mean, didn't he have, like, didn't he have a pillow or a cushion to rest on? And he, he surely could afford these luxury items to field, shield him from physical distress. But he decided not to. He 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 wanted to be part of what everybody else was was going through. And and then finally, people say the the question is, well, what if a person says? Who's going to know? Like, who's going to know? I'll, I'll, I'll shut the door and then, you know, I'll make my celebrity Instagram videos expressing empathy for the suffering people and the man. And then I'll shut the door of my mansion and I'll just go on as before. Who's ever going to know? And the Talmud is here very aware that these kind of crises affect different people in different classes differently. But there are large swathes of society who are quite able if they choose to close the doors and continue to live as before. But the decision to change actually comes in recognition that uh, suffering going on outside, but it's not imposed on you from the outside. And the, and the, and the, the, the Talmud says, the four different views, you know, the stones of a person's house will know. The beams of your house will know. The angels who accompany you, you will know. But your own soul will know. Your very limbs will know. And, you know, you can afterwards, you know, unpack, each of you unpack what each of these means because they're all getting at something slightly different. But, but what they generally are saying is that the issue is one of individual integrity 
it's not of and, and an issue of communal solidarity it doesn't say it could say but it doesn't say that if you consume less there'll be more for other people or that by consuming less you're going to make a, a material difference to the situation it's about your integrity the point is not to change your life so that others can live you know that it doesn't say that the point is change your life because otherwise how can you possibly live with yourself right and this is an approach i think this because it's so deeply rooted as nigel said in what it means to be Jew, jewish you know maybe it has a better chance of moving people or at the very least it's worth a try so so thank you for bringing that up because i really didn't want to make leave you with the idea that I don't think it's important. It is important, it's very important, but I think for different reasons than the ones which most people are talking about. I, I wanna thank you for that, that ending. I wanna thank everybody uh, for joining us. A special thank you to Liana and Hannah for joining us. I wanna leave everybody with the thought that it seems to be at least possible that Greta Thunberg will get the Nobel Prize this Friday. Uh, we will see whether she does or not. Um, uh, uh, but certainly if she does, and at some point, please God, she will do, um, it's the ultimate exemplar, it seems to me, of the relationship between, as it were, the Yechida and larger impacts. Um, mm -hmm. and, a, and a moment, in fact, for the Jewish community and everybody to unpack this, uh, this tension, this challenge, and this opportunity between our insignificance as individuals and our immense significance. So to everybody, thank you. Please join us again tomorrow. Feel free to send in questions or comments uh, if you want for Udigia to try and integrate, but we will create more time uh, on Thursday. Um, as with yesterday, these are being posted online. This has been taped. It'll be up online on Facebook within half an hour. If you want to send it to anybody or invite friends to join us, you are warmly welcome to do so.